You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, David. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Well enough, I think. Okay. Well, that's all we can ask for in this world. Um, well, let I, me... I, you can ask for a great deal more if you if you put your mind to it. So. Oh, maybe that's been my mistake. I just need to ask? Yeah. Well, no, I don't mean that you'll get what you ask for, but you can ask. You for can ask. Okay. Well, yeah. that's yeah. some consolation. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're David Bentley Hart, very well-known theologian, very prolific theologian. And you've written a book called That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation, in which you bring good news to us all, which is that none of us, none of us, not me, not even Sam Harris, is going to hell. Is that, that is your view, right? Well, I definitely believe, don't believe in an eternal hell, no. I, um, I prefer to think of myself as a scholar of religious studies, by the way, than theologian. And there are a lot of people who'd prefer I call myself that as well. Um, but yeah, the book is about uh, uh, Christian universalism, about not only its history, but uh, its logic. Uh, but principally, it's a philosophical argument that's negative in form. I'm afraid I don't know if it brings good news, uh, but the claim it does make is that if Christian claims, classical Christian claims are coherent, the only way they can be coherent is in the form of one of the classical universalist construals. Okay. So uh, it's it's a somewhat more minimal claim than that we're all okay. But you're but you're a Christian, so presumably you do believe they're coherent. Um. Well, I believe uh, in certain configurations they're coherent. Yes, I, I think. Namely, uh, yours. But, but if, or, or you know, Gregory of Nyssa's, Isaac of Nineveh's. Uh, there, there, there. There's a long tradition there. But I mean, I, I that doesn't mean that I'm an apologist for the Christian religion in whatever form it takes. I mean, I, I think there is uh, there are Christian truths, uh, and there's quite a lot of nonsense that goes under the name of Christianity. So it's not, it's not an apologetic project for me. Okay. Um, so speaking of, although you did write a book, uh, a, a book called Atheist Delusions, which presumably took issue with the new atheists. Uh, yeah, not, not really my title, incidentally. They're mentioned at the beginning and at the end, actually. The, the, the book that deals more specifically with, with the new atheism is called The Experience of God. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I have, uh, I have very little patience for the four horsemen of the new atheism as they were then. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, uh, I think a fad that's more or less passed anyway. They're more interesting arguments to be had between, uh, religious believers and unbelievers and everything in between. I think that was a period of extraordinary, crudity and public discourse on, on these matters. And so I'm kind of well, glad it's passed. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to put that behind us. So you mentioned Gregory of Nyssa, which leads to the question, 
How radical is the idea of universal salvation? Well, both in a contemporary context, if you just kind of look at the the current landscape of opinion among theologians and and clergy and so on, I guess, um, and historically, Gregory of Nyssa lived, I don't know, 16 centuries ago or something. Yeah, fourth century. Um, Well, it depends on, I mean, controversial for whom? Um, in the in the early centuries of the of the of the Christian Church, and specifically in the more eastern quarters of the of the Greco-Roman world, the Semitic and Hellenistic part of the empire, it was apparently quite a live option for many centuries. Um, partly simply because you know the Greek of the New Testament is more flexible and more and more ambiguous in its meanings than the sort of translations we're familiar with, but also there were well-established schools of thought that that had built up a very impressive exegesis of of scripture and of tradition that was universalist. By the, I would say, by the end of the fifth century, it's 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 very much dying away in Christian history, and it remained something of a subterranean current. It had a presence in in the in the Persian and East Syrian. Uh, Part of the Christian world, Central uh, Central Asia as well, in in the uh, what's called the East Syrian or Assyrian Church, where where it remained a very lively part of the tradition. Um, but on the whole, uh, if nothing else, it didn't serve institutional imperatives uh, very well, and it died out uh, uh, in, after the, I'd say w- well before the end of the first half millennium. The, the institutional imperative being that if you don't sign up for Christianity, you're in trouble? Yeah. If, uh, you know, let, let's be honest, uh, the, the more sort of open and nebulous eschatology of the first, cent, first one or two centuries, and it was much more nebulous than most modern Christians realize, um, worked fine in a context in which the Christian movement was doctrinally diverse, ge- geographically scattered, uh, without really a very easily recognizable central structure of authority. Uh, I won't get into the history of... <laughs> uh, but but after, you know, a, a specific tradition within Christianity became established as the great church tradition of the empire... Mm-hmm. And suddenly, Christians were not the company of those who, who'd willingly or, or uh, entered uh, into this association from the pagan world, but were more or less the whole population of the empire, other than, say, Jewish communities and one or two recalcitrant uh, pagans. Suddenly, the church was an institution of civil order and and uh, political decorum and respectability and stability. It was something it most definitely wasn't in its early years. In fact, it was a fairly subversive teaching in the in its in its earliest form. And at that point, it became it was it's obvious which version of of the eschatological story was going to be triumphant. It would be the one that had the greatest power to coerce conscience and control and imagination. So, and I don't mean that this was a conspiracy. I don't mean that, you know, some cunning group of bishops got together and said, we've got to scare the hell out of these people. I just mean that it was inevitable as a matter of historical development, that the the most rigid uh, and most 
terrifying form of of eschatology would become dominant. Okay, so there, but there have been various appearances of of the idea of universal salvation, um, sure. right? I mean, for one thing, I mean Unitarians. I don't know how many of them know it, but but the the origins of Unitarian, the Unitarian Universal Church, which is what their actual name is 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 merging with a with a, a universalist church and yeah. so that that would still be part of their belief to of course and not many go ahead by the by the 19th century universalist 18th and 19th century it had become a very very powerful movement again not just uh you know, the unitarians you, you could say uh broke off from the orthodox mainstream but you couldn't say that save the russian orthodox church where mm-hmm. every significant intellectual figure of the russian 19th early 20th early 20th century was either a universalist explicitly or implicitly. I mean, uh, it's to the point where, I mean, you know, you're Dostoevsky. Uh, Not really. When, you know, but go uh, ahead. But, well, in the famous dialogue Rebellion, uh, it just comes just before the Grand Inquisitor's Tale when, when Ivan is talking to Alyosha about what he objects to, why, why he can't consent, why he returns his ticket to the kingdom to God. One of the curious things that's often overlooked is he assumes a universal reconciliation. Mm. He, he assumes that that all will be saved, and that's precisely what he can't bear to imagine, mm. because for him, uh, the injustices, the suffering of this life, especially the suffering of children, is too high a price to pay even for the universal kingdom of, of, of love and knowledge. So... Uh, but also then in the Anglican Church, I mean, it's amazing how many figures from the 19th century, names you would know, you know, Bra- the Brontes, Tennyson, uh, Lewis Carroll uh, was uh, – so in the 19th century, it became a, a serious movement again. And among scriptural scholars like the, like the great F.D. Morris, the, the uh, English uh, Christian socialist. Didn't, didn't the Second uh, Vatican nod toward universalism or not? It, it, well, let's, let's say no. I mean, well, I, you know, uh, let's simply say that the Roman Church has been kind of trying to uh, um, make it harder and harder to get into hell. I'm for That's that. Why they can't. Uh, they can't quite. Uh, um, the, the problem with, of course, with Roman Catholicism is you have such a huge dogmatic panoply weighing down the body of the faith because dogma continues uh, to develop, supposedly. Whereas, uh, say, in the Orthodox Church, which is uh, is uh, my affiliation. Uh, there hasn't really been any dogmatic movement since the seventh century or eighth century. So, uh, and and so far fewer things have been defined, and so far fewer things have been forbidden. Mm-hmm. So, is universalism? Uh, you mentioned you you are in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I gather you converted from I don't know Episcopalianism or something. Good guess. Good guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, is is universalism the idea of universal salvation more common in the Eastern Orthodox tradition? And uh, it has recurred with more frequency, and you will find it uh, somewhat more widespread than definitely than in Roman Catholicism or Magisterial Protestantism. But you have just as many people in the Orthodox church per capita, let's say, who object to the idea. Believe me, it's, uh, it's, it's a controversial topic. Okay. Uh, 
in the East as well. But, I mean, there hasn't been, I'll say this, in the 19th and 20th century, if you look at all the, the significant Orthodox thinkers, philosophers, theologians, scholars of religion, the vast majority of them were universalist uh, to, to a surprising degree. And the greatest figure, the greatest philosophical mind, the Orthodox Church produced in the, in the modern age, Sergei Bulgakov, was also the most systematically universalist. Okay. So let's talk about your reasons for believing uh, that no one spends eternity in hell. I mean, there's a couple of you, – you have more than one argument, and there, there are, of course, various approaches. You, you can talk about Scripture and say there's no clear scriptural foundation. Um, you can you can kind of talk in a, in a, I guess, more theological way and say that uh, what we surmise about the nature of God isn't consistent with eternal damnation. Why, why don't we start with the scripture uh, part and, and talk about um, wh- how, how often do we see clear – and I should say, by the way, uh, you know, you, you uh, have your own translation of the New Testament. One of the things you've done is produce uh, your own – yeah, with all, why, all fourteen why do you laugh? Gospels. What's um, that? No, I was I was just going to make a stupid joke about it. So, oh, so oh the stupider the better. But the stage is yours. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's an old argument, of course. But I mean, if if you mean how many picture, how many places in the New Testament, which is the only place you have to look, because the the uh, Hebrew Bible doesn't have a concept of a place of post mortem punishment, except fleetingly perhaps at the edges of the uh, intertestamental period. Uh, That whole sort of eschatology was in a sense taken on board as a result of of intellectual cultural commerce with Persia and with the Zoroastrian uh, tradition there. Uh, What enters into Christian thought is a very, uh, how can I say, heterogeneous, uh, faraginous sort of collection of images and ideas that are very hard to pin down. Uh, intertestamental books like the Book of Enoch give us pictures of the afterlife. What we have in the New Testament uh, are, are a great number of recognizable metaphors from that, that, that period, but no pictures of a place of unending torment after death. Even the word that's often translated as hell or traditionally in the preachings of Christ when he's talking about uh, whatever it is that he's talking about in his eschatological discourses, if they are even eschatological. That's also an old issue in biblical scholarship. The Gehenna, the uh, the Vale of Hinnom, uh, is more an image of a, uh, borrowed from Isaiah, a place of the destruction of, of rubbish and of corpses. And it's just a, it's an all purpose sort of uh, portmanteau metaphor for throwing things out, getting rid of them. So it's the city dump. It's Jerusalem city dump. Yeah. Well, it wasn't really that, that though it's been called that before. It has more to do with a place of, uh, but also a place of sacrifice, a place where there were perhaps disposals of dumps, but also charnel grounds. Mm-hmm. It's also an image of, of a place filled with the, the, the bodies of the fallen uh, in Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. Um, there's only one verse in Matthew that's traditionally 
uh, it's Matthew twenty five forty six, traditionally uh, translated as having something to do with everlasting punishment. But again, everlasting is translation of aeonius, and there are long traditions of what does this mean in the Greek? How does it render the la alam of the Aramaic that Christ would have been speaking? The word punishment, is it uh, retributive? Does it mean aeonius in the sense of final ultimate, you know, it's just that one elusive verse. And, and what is that verse as conventionally translated? Uh, the, it simply says that, you know, it's about the, the separation of the sheep and the goats. Some enter oh, into yeah. uh, eternal life, others into eternal mm-hmm. correction is what Colossus really means in Greek originally. Um, but eternal or of the age or, uh, you know, of the age to come or for a long time or of a divine nature, you know, all these things are all plausible renderings of the way Aeonius figures in the grammar of, of the first century. Then the earliest Christian documents of all the letters of Paul, there's no mention of a place like hell at all. He clearly had no concept of such a place. Um, for him, it, the whole issue was that he that there's a cosmic age we inhabit. There is a cosmic uh, restoration coming, an age to come, an olam haba, mm-hmm. and uh, and one wants to be part of that reality of a restored and transfigured cosmos, not a heaven, but of a recre- of a restored creation. But for him, the only place he ever mentions. Uh, a fire of judgment is in First Corinthians three, and there it talks about two classes of person: those whose works have been good works, and therefore they'll withstand the trial of this fire, and people and, and such persons will naturally receive their reward. Then there are those whose works have been evil, and those works will be burned away. And then, but then he goes on to say, and yet he, that is, whoever's works are destroyed, will be saved through the fire, by way of the fire. And there's no third class mentioned. There are a couple images in the book of Revelation. Again, a book of extraordinary, and people who think that they know what the book is about are are lying to you or to themselves. But whatever the case, the imagery is all wildly uh, symbolic and metaphoric, and there and, and even the one verse that leaves you with the, some notion that there's a final destruction in a, in a lake of fire of those who didn't make the cut is followed by this this sort of dreamlike coda in which the world is restored, Jerusalem's the center, and those who are left outside are now invited to come in anyway and just to wash their garments. And so trying to make sense of this imagery in terms of the later mythology of, of some kingdom of, of torture presided over by Satan uh, I mean, we do it habitually. We read it back into the text, but certainly the eschatology of the early Christians had nothing like that kind of simple, clear uh, uh, structure. Mm-hmm. But there, there are verses that certainly seem to indicate that believers get something of consequence that non-believers don't. Probably the most famous is... John 3.16, which is conventionally translated is, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that, Or, or, or whoever is faithful to him, yeah. Okay, perish, right. But, but, but there's something. The there's the of the age or life of the divine, or the divine life, yeah. But the implication right, so, seems to be you don't get eternal life if you're, if you're not a person of faith. 
again, if the word means eternal in the sense you're thinking of. Uh, but, but again, as I say, the early uh, tradition, people like Origen or Clement or Gregory of Nyss or Isaac of Nineveh or Macrina or so on, Theodore of Mopsuestia, Diodore of Tarsus, to give you a few universalist names, would again say that that that, that there's a kind of realized uh, there's there's an eschatological horizon in history, and that's the case of those they would read it through that Pauline pericope I just gave you. There are those who, uh, instead of simply being part of the new creation, first must be purified, purged, restored, recreated, uh, made whole. Uh, have to go through the painful process of being separated from their own egos, from their own cruelty, from all the things that cut them off from the love of others. So you think it would be more consistent with Scripture to think of a hell that's not eternal, but but maybe would be an unpleasant period of reconciling yourself with God or something? Well, isn't first of all, isn't that true any way of life? We all have the. We've all had that experience of heaven or hell. The is being either shutting ourselves into our own egos and our own resentments, and we find that we torment ourselves um, through rejecting the love of others. But also, the question is again: remember, the question of the book is: Is this a coherent? Is there a coherent story here at all? The New Testament is, I mean, full of claims of universal redemption. They always get overlooked, but, I mean, they're just there. I mean, Romans 5.18 or 1 Corinthians 15.22. Why, why don't you tell us what one of those says? Well, just that just as all human beings fell or, became, or, 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 or inherited death in Adam, whatever the, so all will be given life in Christ, you know, things like that. I mean, the, you, the, the, these formulations are actually legion in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. He is the atonement for the whole cosmos, not just for us, that is, believers, but for the whole of the cosmos, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, those verses far, far outnumber, uh, uh, and, and then you have the actual teachings of Christ. You know, the, I, I always find it odd it's not just, of course, say, American fundamentalists. I mean, you find it in every communion, but the people who take this incredibly metaphorical language, and they recognize that it's metaphorical to a point, but then impose a literal meaning on it, which they assume is non-negotiable. So let me take a sip here. Sure. Um, Let's pretend this is water. Um, What is it actually? It's water, but again, I'm trying to make a bad joke. Um, you know, I was I was brought up Southern Baptist, and at, at communion, you know, what was in our little grape our juice. little glasses? What's that? Grape juice. Grape juice. We didn't we didn't get wine. Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I and I should I should make clear to people who are listening and not watching, you're not drinking wine. That looked more like a Pellegrino or something. It is San Pellegrino. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um. But, I mean, they'll see that the Christ uses all sorts of metaphors, and then somehow, because they've inherited this notion of a simple, uniform teaching about heaven and hell, somehow in their mind, they uh, they, they make these, these metaphors combined into a single image. So, image of ovens destroying chaff, you know. 
they recognize that the ovens are metaphor, but somehow they turn that that uh, are metaphors. But you, you would think metaphors for destruction, as would be the case also of the invocation of the Gehenna or just throwing out the rubbish. Uh, but somehow they think that that's a clear statement about eternal punishment. Obviously, it's not. That's not the language that's being used or being left out of the party. I mean, that's part, you know, the wedding feast. It sounds so grand and ominous in the King James, you know, at the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But really, the, the party's going on inside, and you got locked outside. It's a dark night, and, you, and, you're, and, you, and you're shedding tears because you're, you're, you're angry that you got left out of the party. A milder image, but also still not an image of eternal torment. The only image you get of torment in Christ's teaching is the three points where he talks about being sent to debtor's prison and being abused there by the torturers, but those all come with an until attached, you know? So, uh, yeah, I would say that if, if there's a consistent story being unfolded in the new Testament, I'm not insisting there is, but if there is the universalist one makes sense of all the verses one way or another, come hell or high water, so to speak. Whereas the traditional image we have, aside from all the other problems it brings with it, like the sheer moral unintelligibility of the idea, uh, makes a nonsense of all those universalist claims. It makes them sound like they're nothing but vapid hyperbole, as if Paul went around making wild claims that uh, he didn't really believe. Okay. So... your 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 belief is that um you know there is no clear foundation to say the least for the idea of eternal hell in the, in the, in the new testament and that leaves you free to ask the question well does the does the idea of of eternal damnation just make sense in light of what we believe about god and your your answer is no before we get to that answer that, that whole issue i want to um you you mentioned a few minutes ago um, Adam, Adam having kind of imp- implanted, well, mm-hmm. having sinned. Now, an idea that, uh, had, had taken root by the time, uh, of Constantine, I, I guess the time at which, as, as I understand you, the notion of eternal damnation became really firmly rooted more in doctrine. More, I'd say for more and more from that period onward, it became an inevitability. Okay. Yeah. So by that time, Augustine's notion of the notion of original sin associated with Augustine uh, had also taken root, and that's the idea that that well, Augustine came a little later in history. He comes at the end of the fourth century, uh, not at the beginning, not when 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 Constantine first. But yeah, okay. Uh, Augustine's understanding of original sin is the idea of an inherited guilt. That's true. That never, by the way, is not part of Eastern Christian tradition. That's that's uh, unique to the West. So I guess you've answered my question. If 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 he came a few decades too late to have set the stage for for you know Constantine and others, uh, I was going to ask: Did the idea of original sin uh, have a lot to do with the idea of eternal damnation? Uh, 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 it definitely came to, especially in the Western synthesis, because you came with this notion. It came with the notion that somehow. Uh, I mean, the, the, the very term original sin is problematic. In the East, the tradition was simply to say that we were born enslaved. All the legal language that Paul uses is civil language regarding slaves and their, and buying them out of slavery. 
the things that we often see translated as ransom, for instance, mm-hmm. litron just really means the manumission fee for setting slaves free who who are laboring under a cruel master or, or prisoners in the, in the house of death. Um, but in the West, especially, it started to become uh, and became absolutely firmly fixed in the Western understanding of Christianity. It came to be a dogma that human beings are born uh, guilty of something because they had mm-hmm. in, inherited a culpability. I mean, obviously, a contradiction in terms just in, in, according to logic, the notion that you can inherit a culpability means nothing other than somebody is attributing a culpability to you that you yourself did nothing to contract. If there were such a thing, it would just be, you know, the ultimate cosmic injustice. But that therefore, everyone is actually born already meriting eternal suffering. It's one of the most colossally perverse ideas ever to arise in the human ima- uh, religious imagination. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this idea that the language of kind of ransom, the, the language of, um, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is, but the language of uh, kind of um, paying off some debt as a, as, as the path to salvation, right? And, and yeah. I, I, and, and, and I, if you flesh that out, I gather, the idea is that Jesus's death is what paid off that debt, I, it, it, and I, I kind of thought that was part of it, it, Paul's yeah. theology, but go not ahead. Really. Not, not really. No. I mean, no. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's not a whole lot of talk about debt in that sense in Paul. Again, he uses the language of civil law as a metaphor, which is simply, what did it cost to set the prisoners free? Mm-hmm. What was the manumission fee? That's all he's asking. He's, there's no indebtedness to okay. God that Christ pays, according to Paul. The, the Really, the earliest understanding of salvation was a much more linear sort of t- tale of the divine hero, so to speak. It was Here, you know, the cosmos had fallen uh, in bondage to death. God entered into the condition of estrangement, and, and that's the language Paul uses. It's all of triumph and overthrow and victory. Death is overthrown. The powers below mm-hmm. the earth are the powers on high, principalities, powers, dominions, thrones. These are the names of angelic orders of gods or, you know, angels of the nations. For him. He's mm-hmm. very much a man of the cosmology of that time. And for basic, basically what salvation is, is the, is, rescuing an entire cosmos that has that has uh fallen into bondage to death it has a very is this the uh fiduciary the uh the economics of you know paying off an angry god with the blood of an innocent victim is again a later development principally in the west and another of the rather barbaric notions that they kind of got entangled with christian belief okay so, I mean, as I told you, I'm not an apologist for Christianity in the abstract. Right. Okay. So, um, well, let's do move to your argument that this just doesn't make sense. Now, uh, you know, one thing you hear from, uh, atheists or is, um, you know, who would believe in a God that would condemn to hell somebody who made a bad decision along the way or somebody who was born in a part of the world where they had no opportunity to hear about Christ or whatever, you know, right. you've heard this kind of argument. I it's, gather you... It's a, it's a good argument. Yeah, you, you said that somewhat captures the spirit of your argument, right? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, look, 
I, I honestly believe that um, when Christianity just became a system of salvation, that is in the sense that you, you, you get, the, get as many people into the club as possible, that the actual radical nature of the claims made by the, by the early church kind of disappeared. Both of this, it looks to us mythological in large part is, but I mean, this notion of, of a creation estranged from God, longing to be reunited to God and God becoming human, that human beings can become God, which is, you know, the famous line that you find repeated uh, ad infinitum by the Eastern fathers, theosis, divinization. This, all of that uh, falls by the way, and instead we get this rather banal story that doesn't make sense uh, about wrath and retribution. And comes with it the story of, of an eternal hell in which we're asked to believe uh, of the, say of the unbaptized or of the unconverted, or maybe even just of the people who are just morally unlucky uh, that an infinite creative intelligence that is also infinite love and justice would actually create conditions that would lead to rational nature, suffering, eternal torment. The idea is so obviously contradictory, so obviously false, so obviously logically meaningless. I mean, it's just gibberish at the the level of of sheer predicative logic that we have to convince ourselves it's true by the most extraordinary uh, uh, rationalizations. And the, the history of Christian thought on hell, if you look at it, is of ever more ridiculous arguments being made to preserve a premise that never deserved to be uh, held by any sane person to begin with. Okay, so there's, um, you know, the, the the term theodicy refers to the, the kind of the problem of evil. Why would an omnipotent and benevolent God, a good God who could in principle set the world up, however... Um, in, in any way, um, why would a God like that permit horrible things to happen? And that's sometimes taken to refer to just the suffering we see on earth that undeniably does happen. But, but I, I think, uh, I guess you tell me one thing you're saying is, is look, to throw eternal damnation into the equation just complicates, you know, it makes, it well, makes the theodicy that much, uh, harder to overcome as an, as an intellectual obstacle to belief. Well, it does. It also the two the two issues shouldn't be confused with one another. I, I uh, you know I don't. Um, I mean, I've written on theodicy in the past, um, and I won't write on it again because this book was the last book I'm going to write on a theological topic. But um, well, bar one, I have a contract for one on the small thing. But what's what's that about? Uh, just about whether or not uh, tradition. Is a is a coherent concept. It's a small book, but but this I mean, my, most of my work now is on philosophy of mind, actually. So I'm actually putting all this aside. <laughs> the uh, but the truth the truth of this is that you you have two fundamentally different questions because theodicy is possible. It's not wise to undertake it, but it's possible. That is, you could say that that transient evils are poss- can can be explained in terms of an ultimate good. That is, that if they lead to an ultimate state from which all evils 
in an ultimate sense, have been banished, and it allows for the creation, say, of free spiritual natures. It's inevitable. There are any number of answers to theodicy. The question of hell is very different. Because there you're talking about uh, supposedly what enters into the final pattern of the reality that God intends in creating. And at that point, there, there are these, all these old theological distinctions between what God directly wills and what he directly, what he indirectly permits for the greater good. That distinction collapses at an eschatological horizon because the ultimate state of things is the one creation that an omnipotent God obviously positively wills. And so at, when you bring eternal hell into it, now the nature of the will of God becomes However you want to try to argue it away, I mean, as I said, there's a fairly complex philosophical argument in the book, but ultimately you're claiming that God, who by classical Christian claims is not only good, but the good as such, the transcendent ontological plenitude of the good being in in the full splendor of its transcendental uh, uh, attributes, directly wills evil. Which is, uh, which is what you end up with, so that the act of damnation and the act of creation are more or less interchangeable with one another where individual souls are concerned that he has. There's no way you can continue to pretend that, that this is a, an only, uh, provisional evil leading to an ultimate good. Rather, what you have is a relative good and a relative evil, which is the contrary of the Christian claim. Again, as I point out, the issue in the book is the rational coherence of the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. It is, is, are the classical Christian claims coherent? And usually they aren't, uh, right. if they involve the idea of eternal perdition. Okay. So it's one thing to say, well, this suffering will be worth it in the long run. You know, it will serve some no, okay. greater good that will show up in the wrong, long run. But if the suffering is eternal, then that, that, yeah, work. I mean, it's, it's a meaning. And then, you know, you ask yourself, what, what does that mean? It means that part of the calculus of creation then, uh, I mean, there's a long passage in the book that's a kind of a game theory. But the calculus, the creation is what, what are the stakes that God's willing to give up in order to uh, bring about the end he desires? And if, in fact, that's the damned, either through direct predestination or just through the stochastic probability that some people will fall and others won't, then God has made a compromise with evil for the sake of a relatively good end. And, uh, you know, that's again, contrary to uh, the, the very, you know, the, the most basic classical claims Christianity has always made about the divine nature, about the metaphysics of, of transcendence, and so on and so forth. Okay. So, um, there's a, uh, I mean, one one connection, and may, maybe this is implicit in how you answered my first theodicy question, I don't know, but one, one seeming connection between the problem of evil in the sense of the suffering we see and the question of eternal damnation is that one, one common answer to the problem of evil is to say, well, yeah, God could have made it so that everything is peaches and cream, but God wanted us to have free will. Free will means you will make mistakes. Suffering will happen. And, and sometimes that same answer is given to explain eternal damnation, right? It may seem unjust, but you have, or it may, it may seem unfortunate, but you have free will. 
and you screwed up and you have to suffer forever. Sadly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, that's the most popular answer today. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis, the gates of hell are locked from the inside and all that. And to some degree, psychologically, it's true. To the degree that we all experience the hell that really exists, that we all know, it's because we choose not to love and the love of others becomes a torment to us. But it's totally nonsensical as an, uh, as, as a, uh, as a justification for the idea of an eternal hell for any number of reasons. One, it presumes a libertarian model of freedom that I think is rationally unsustainable. If you look at what it is that can actually logically be called a free act, uh, it would have to be one that, that takes the form, that's sort of the classical notion of the intellectualist model of liberty, which is that, first of all, to the degree that you're sane, you know, you have to be sane to be really to make free choices. If you're, you know, you see somebody who wants to run into a burning building and be consumed by the fire because he's got it into his mind that the angels are telling him to do this and that it will be a delightful thing. His choice to do that really isn't free, is it? You know, you have to know what you're choosing. And so every time you reject what will really make, what would really make you happy, what would really be the satisfaction of your de- the deepest promptings of your nature, you do so out of, to a certain degree, a certain amount of ignorance. You've made a mistake. As you, you said, as you said, freedom uh, makes it possible to make mistakes. But mistakes are themselves a kind of bondage, right? It means that your freedom was constrained by the limits of what you knew or of your rational capacity. Uh, in the classical view of freedom, you need to accept that a rational nature desires the transcendentals, let's say, you know, the good, the truth. There, there's an index of values that you long for. What's, what will actually satisfy your nature? Because you have that transcendental orientation of the will and the mind towards things like, I want this because it's beautiful. That's because you have a transcendental desire for beauty first before you can desire a finite object as beautiful. That makes you free. It gives you an index within which to make judgments. Freedom is always a rational, it just is, to the degree that it's irrational, the closer it comes to a purely spontaneous physical accident, like an embolism or an earthquake, to the degree that it's really free. If there is real freedom, it has this structure. You're making judgments in light of a set of an index of, of values that exceed the boundaries of the empirical world, but that are the entire orientation of your nature. And this isn't all that abstract. Again, we can see it as a sort of example I gave you. A, a fool might thrust his hand into the fire, but only a lunatic will keep it there because his nature desires pleasure rather than pain. Okay. If you really believe, as the Christians claim is the case, that, that God is the sole good of being, is the, the, the source and end of all things, the only thing that can truly fulfill a rational nature in its own natural end, it's longing for good, it's longing for love, it's longing for truth, beauty, then there can never really be a free rejection of God except under the, you know, to, the, to a very limited degree, the, 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 it, to some degree, 
It has to do with irrationality or ignorance. And so the claim that that a rational creature chooses unending torment and the thwarting of his or her nature just out of a perverse uh, of a perversity that has no rationale, no, no rational basis, and say that that's a free decision made, compass mentis, that therefore justifies the teaching of eternal dereliction and misery, is absurd. It, so are you it, saying that it's, 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 again, a logically vacuous claim. I, I, the example, I'm sorry to keep talking and such, but the example I always like to give, you know Frank Stockton's story, uh, The no. Lady or the Tiger? Well, he's not quite as famous as Dostoevsky, so you get you know you don't. I can be excused for this one, okay? Yeah. But but why don't yeah? Why don't you review it on the assumption that it, it, it's just that the story is about it's a, it's um you know there's a, it's a mythical kingdom in which there's a, a tyrant king who's sort of semi civilized who's come up with a way of punishing criminals in which they put in an arena, and there are two doors, and behind one of the doors is a famished tiger who will devour them if they open that door. And the other is a beautiful woman. It's assumed the, the criminals are men. You know, this is a 19th century story. And a beautiful, the most beautiful available maiden in the village, and they'll immediately be married. Those are your two choices. Now, that's not always a happy thing. It could be that you're already married or that you love someone else. You have no choice. Okay. Let's put all that aside. Put away the rest of the story, too, which is actually about the princess that the courtier falls in love with. In the, in the story, there's a courtier who's been sentenced to this because he fell in love with the king's daughter. Now, what makes him freer? Not knowing which door is which or, have, or knowing where the tiger is and where the girl is. Well, in the latter case, he's, he's freer to make a free decision. What are the chances that he's going to choose the door with the tiger? Well, fifty-fifty. <laughs> no, I would say zero. If he's oh, you mean if he sane. knows? If he knows? If he knows and yeah. he's sane. Yeah, uh, right. Well, that's so, the point. Is that it's not the choice that makes you free. It's knowing what you're choosing. But the more you know, the less there is to choose. The free, the free will naturally, spontaneously moves towards the end. That so, it so are you saying desires. that by definition, truly sinful behavior cannot be a product of free? Choice? Not fully free, not perfectly free, not free enough to justify the, 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 the teaching of an eternal hell. No. Okay. Is there, now, is there also, and again, maybe relatedly, I don't know, uh, uh, is part of your argument kind of like, look, God set this whole thing up. How can we be, re- you know, isn't God ultimately responsible for uh, things, you know, like the repeated commission of these things. You know, it's like if you're the CEO, ultimately, what it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, everything happens on your watch. You're the one who hired them. You're the one who trained them. You're the, it's not an exact analogy, but is there a little bit of that spirit? To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, that's part of the argument of the, 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 the first meditation in my book is on, on the, Again, collapsing the distinction between will and permission and God. If you really, if you really think through to the end what you're saying when you make make certain claims about about what God would will or not will, and that's why you know you go at what what did someone like Origen or Gregory of Nyssa think that the point of creation is? It's ultimately to call spirits out of nothingness into eternal divinizing union with with God and 
within a frame of created nature, which is full of the glory of God and is absolutely, that's it. That's the whole point. If you don't reach that end, then God's will has been thwarted. If you think that God's will is to set up this ridiculous game of chance in which you either you, you either get the golden ticket or you don't, you either get in to see Willy Wonka or you don't, and if you don't, you're going to be tortured forever. Uh, that, I think, is an impoverished and rather silly, uh, cartoonish a decline from this sort of glorious cosmic vision that you find in in Paul in say First Corinthians chapter fifteen. To go from that, you know that 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 glory, you know, you know, which is uh, what in, in the religious literature of, of 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 humanity, it's one of the great great texts, 1 Corinthians 15. It's up there with, you know, the Isho Upanishad and, and other works. Um, or the Lotus Sutra, you know. It's one of those things that when you read it the first time, it, it uh, and you really read what's there as opposed to what you've been taught to find there, it should shift your vision of what the religious imagination is capable of seeing. Um, to go from that to this silly tale in which God just set up this game of winners and losers and the losers are just you know vindictively tortured forever uh to me it's just an uh, it's just an obscene corruption okay so we talked a little about the extent to which uh hell has a, a foundation in the scripture in the new testament let's talk a little about heaven i mean you you do see the phrase kingdom of heaven or of the heavens, yeah. Okay, Matthew, or, or kingdom of God. Story. But the, I think the conventional thinking is that that would not have, well, uh, certainly a lot of people say that that would not have meant to people of Jesus' day what a lot of contemporary Christians Im- imagine when they think of heaven, which is a place separate from the earth up there right. that you yeah. go to. No, in the eschatology of, of, of the whole Bible, Hebrew and, and Jewish and Christian alike, uh, is this worldly. Uh, the kingdom of heaven just means the kingdom of the heavenly places or the transcendent places, the places on high. If you had the sort of cosmology of the time, it would mean the kingdom literally either of the Empyrean above the sphere of the fixed stars or the prima mobile even, or the kingdom that encompassed everything above the, the sphere of the moon, you know. But it just means the divine places, but it doesn't mean where you... With the kingdom of the heavens or of heaven comes to earth, it is to transform earth so all of the language of of redemption in the new testament is of a new heaven a new a new sky literally a new earth and all the animals are there rejoicing and there's plant life and animal life and human life and there you know it's a communal it's a cosmic restoration in which the glory of god now pervades everything i think the in eastern christian tradition you know which has a certain certain pronounced mystical tendencies, even at mm-hmm. the center of dogmatic life. Uh, a very popular image is to say th- the, that the, the end of creation is for creation to become like the burning bush, pervaded by the glory of God, but not consumed. Okay. So, so this, uh, this is the bush that Moses saw. And uh, yeah, yeah. You, want, you want to rem- just quickly remind people who, who aren't conversant in that, uh, the importance of that. 
uh, I guess the the days of the sort of general cultural literacy on these things. I think, I think you can no longer assume. Yes, right, yeah, I, I'm, no, I'm told. No. I'm told just as alarmingly. I'm told that there are now people in college who don't remember the movie The Matrix. Yeah, so yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, and and as Gnostic allegories go, it's not the best one in cinema, but it but it's you know, it wasn't that long ago. Personally, I preferred the Truman Show, but. Yeah. Anyway, you know it's uh, funny. I was just thinking. You know, Jim Carrey's got a novel out that was uh, co-authored by someone I know. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Truman Show. But but we digress. The um, so uh, uh, the, the the burning bush quickly. Burning uh, bush. Uh, the first theophany in the book of Exodus. The first vision. Uh, the first showing of God to Moses mm-hmm. is in the form of a a, a burning bush. A bush. Uh, that is not consumed by the flames, uh, and, and the angel of the Lord or the Lord or Yahweh himself, depending on which of the verses you're looking at, these things tend to be conflated in the Bible, speaks out of the bush to Moses, and 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 that's the first time Moses is deputed by God to be his liberator. Now, is this where God says, as the conventional translation goes, I am that I am, or one, one conventional translation? Yeah. A ye asha a ye in Hebrew, or uh, uh, you know, and uh, it can also mean I will be where I will be, or you know, I I will be what I will be. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it it uh, it can be translated a number of ways. So I took you off track though. What 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 um what what were you saying about the how are you applying the burning bush to this? Just that this was the vision of uh, of the purpose of creation. Uh, in the New Testament, and or in uh, you know uh, the early church, it's not not that human spirits are wafted away to uh, an ethereal right. paradise, but rather that the whole cosmos. Well, it's right there in Paul, chapter eight of Romans, that all of creation is groaning in anticipation of the glory that will be revealed. You know, it's or you know. Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's not. Uh, it's not. A, it's not about a a, a heaven elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So just to um, to nail down this 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 question of what heaven kingdom of heaven might have meant at that time, I gather the idea was it referred to a time at which the kingdom of the kingdom of God would come to earth, so to speak. It's an it's an yeah. it's a kind of end times thing. And the idea wasn't that you enter the kingdom of heaven as soon as you die, but right. uh, w- uh, everyone, well, in your view, everyone, but but certainly at a minimum, all believers w- will enter it uh, when it arrives on earth, and, and you will, and then presumably dead people will be resurrected, uh, and uh, so on. You know, yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's also called the age to come. It was just the, the, all the expectation, and we have to be clear about this for, for Paul and apparently for Jesus. Uh, though, again, Paul, we have his direct words, and Jesus, we have what he's reported to say, but this is an imminent thing that's coming. Right. Um, and uh, it didn't. You know, so uh, the question is then, what theologically did Christianity do with that? Well, some could have said, well, you know, in a sense, this language is all taken up in Christ's own story. He is the one who dies and rises. His body is the kingdom, so on and so forth. Or it can be deferred to a distant horizon. A lot of the eschatological language in the synoptics, especially in Matthew and Mark, clearly is meant to refer to 
things that already have happened in history, the destruction of the temple and all. So it, it gets very confusing. The the sort of tidy eschatological picture later Christians formed and have inherited is is a synthesis. It's not there in an obvious form in the text. Instead, what you have there is a lot of ambiguity, a lot of promises of grace, a lot of promises of justice. Uh, a lot of the language is political. I mean, we make the, the division between the political and the religious. <coughs> it doesn't seem to be the case here. I mean, Christ's uh, doctrines, his teachings are extremely political. You know, they're about the relief of the poor and of the, and of the justice that God would bring to those who are cast down and rejected and oppressed by the wealthy and the powerful, you know, and this is part of the kingdom as well and part of the kingdom that can be lived out in history. So I think um, much of what we think we know the early Christians taught, what we think we know Christ or his followers believed is more or less a projection of later centuries of a very, uh, of, of a picture that's simply not, doesn't correspond to what was originally there. Okay. So, um, do you have a conception of what the afterlife might be like? You clearly, uh, I assume you're skeptical of a lot of conventional scenarios. Yeah. I No, I, I have none. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, and I think all of the, even the dogmatic pronouncements on this are, are, are worthless. Uh, you know, you know, the, uh, so I say it's part of Catholic doctrine, for instance, that there's such a thing as immediate judgment and so on and so forth. I think all of that uh, should just just be judiciously ignored. So you're what agnostic, but hopeful, or what? That, uh... Oh, I'm 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 not a materialist. I don't believe that. Uh, you know, uh, I don't even is... believe in the. I don't even believe that you can come up with a materialist reduction of consciousness, let alone. Uh, uh, or of anything else, actually. I'm, I'm, I, so uh, I, I don't doubt. Uh, I just don't. I just don't think any picture we have uh, could possibly be adequate to whatever the reality would be. So I, I dislike uh, trying to. I mean, even I, I just wouldn't claim to know what uh, what it's like beyond this life. You know. I, so I, I find it a. Uh, it, it always results in a kind of cartoon, you know. Mm-hmm. It's always you know you always picture somebody who has a you know a nice a nice front garden and and uh, running running orange juice from the taps, you know. It's 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 everything. Yeah, that our limited imagination at its most guilelessly childlike can come up with. But other than that, you should just you just just take those as psychological symbols of something far greater. But your your not being a materialist makes it to you plausible that it is like something after oh, death. Oh yeah, definitely. In yeah. fact, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I I I regard materialism, physicalism, everything, especially as it's been conceived since the rise of the mechanical philosophy in the 17th century as so logically incoherent as not even to be a serious option. 
Now, is this why you're more and more getting into philosophy of mind? To well, actually, more and more returning to it. Returning uh, to it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, if I, I uh, um, you know, I, I've written on it in the past. It's just time to to put all the pieces together into a single book because I've been promising to do so for ten years now. And mm-hmm. so that's that's what I'm working on now. But yeah, no, philosophy of mind to me is the most fascinating. I mean, they're all the classical ontological, or I don't mean ontological argument in the sense of answer, I mean arguments about ontological contingency and all that that, that I, I, I regard as sound regarding the impossibility of reducing uh, uh, material existence to a material cause. But consciousness, I think, uh, I think in a philosophy of mind, we're seeing a wonderful crisis arise where all the schools, uh, you know, that have tried, tried to come up with answers in terms of supervenience or emergentism or epiphenomenalism or whatever are breaking down into two extreme options because every argument is failing. Computational models of mind have proved to be illogical. So, so, so it's either panpsychism, everything is conscious and consciousness is just like a physical property, or total eliminativism, consciousness doesn't exist. And the well, reason these two ex- extremes are becoming more and more the default positions is because everything in between is becoming, has been suffering, has been subjected to such withering critique. Well, in principle, there's epiphenomenalism, or would you call that a subset of panpsychism? Or? No, I, I don't even consider. Well, I mean, you could. I mean, you could say that if. Well, you, let me let me say let me say by that we mean the idea that my consciousness, my subjective experience, is uh, something that's caused by my physical the workings of my brain, but does not in turn exert an influence back right. on the brain. So it's as if it, it has a relationship to my physical brain that the shadow of my hand has to my hand. Right. And all that is is a way of restating the problem. You know, the issue is, uh, you know, again, there's no causal narrative one way or the other. So if you just eliminate one of the uh, one of the directions of causality, that somehow cuts your problem in half. But it really doesn't. Uh, Epiphenomenalism is not an answer to anything. It's just a supposition about a relationship that we still have no plausible causal narrative for. Um, and uh, I, I, well, I mean, I, if it's true, it would. Oh, it, but, I, it's, but it, 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 if it were true, it would be vacuously true because it would be true in a way that, that doesn't explain anything. But well, actually, also, I think it's better than eliminativism because that oh, eliminativism yeah, well, doesn't... doesn't, doesn't. Uh, no, I, I'm talking about... When I mention the two extreme options, I'm talking about two options that, that don't work. Oh, I see. I, so, I so, no so you're just saying epiphenomenalism is in that same category to, in the continuum, that don't work. Uh, continuum of failed attempts at talking about... I mean... It, panpsychism doesn't work if it's a physical panpsychism that, that thinks of consciousness as a property because consciousness isn't a property. Mm-hmm. It's a particular kind of act with a particular phenomenological contour. So it's, uh, um, but I mean, I, there are f- other forms of panpsychism, religious, idealists, so on, which I find inoffensive, but you know, that's a different issue. So do you have an answer to the mind body problem? 
I, uh, I, uh, well, uh, <laughs> how much longer do we have? Yeah, I know. So it's, it's not, not a question that should not be asked this late in an interview, but just. Well, uh, I, I'll confess that, that, that I, I'm, uh, what you might call a Neoplatonist or Vedantist in my metaphysical leanings. And the, I think that that can be shown to be the most, uh, plausible approach. So, so, so I don't, you, yeah. Can you elaborate on that? You mean you you think consciousness is more fundamental than the material world? Yeah, most definitely, yeah. Uh, it would have to be, I think. And, uh, so the material world depends on it more than it depends on the material world? I would say that that the ancient intuition that held good up until the days of the mechanical philosophy, that that, that mind is... is uh, the the more basic reality, the more original, the more primordial principle is correct, and that the modern tendency that has become dogma for us since the 17th century, first in the form of a schism between uh, a mental and a physical realm, and then in terms of a sort of omnivorous physicalism which tried to explain everything, including mind, in terms of a material reduction, it has been a, a logical failure and will continue to be one because it uh, creates uh, more problems than it answers. So, yeah, I'm very much, uh, sorry, I'm much more with the sort of the forest ascetics and the, uh, the contemplatives and the mystics when it comes to how I understand uh, okay. the nature of reality. Now, speaking of mystics, I, I, I think you said earlier, in any event, it is said, that the Eastern Orthodox Church is more mystical than uh, other other traditions in Christianity. Is that, I mean, is that, if you didn't say it, is it true? And, and But but mainly, uh, like, what does it mean? Well, I'll say this. The Eastern churches, the Eastern Orthodox Church, but also the Coptic and the Assyrian churches, uh, the spiritual life is more central. The mystical life is more central. Now, in part, that's just, again, a historical reality that that uh, that uh, much of the Eastern Christian world uh, was conquered uh, by Islam, uh, either out of the Gulf or then by, by the Turkish in the Ottoman Empire. And so the sort of institutional, the centrality of institutional power of the sort you see in Rome, wouldn't have made any sense. And so the center of the spiritual life, the center of the Orthodox Christian life tended to be places like Mount Athos, you know, places where the contemplative life and, and all the great spiritual move, all the great uh, revivals in Orthodox history have been tied into the, the mystical traditions, especially hesychasm, the practice, certain practice of contemplative prayer that has certain physical disciplines and, and so on. So in that sense, it's true that the, the contemplative, the mystical life is more central in the East than it is in the West. And in general, can you, uh, can you elaborate a little on what you mean by the mystical life? I mean, you mentioned contemplative prayer, but, but what, what, well, what do you mean by the, the, the ex- um, a life in which the devotion to prayer and a life of charity allows one in this life uh, at least a, uh, a foretaste of real union with God, uh, with real divinization, with real transfiguration uh, in God, and that this is not, 
you know, according to this tradition, this isn't just a psychological state. It's it's something that that one uh, experiences spiritually, mentally, physically, and uh, you know that in this life, uh, the sort of divinizing experience of holiness is possible. But it's a it's a life. It's an ascetic discipline. Uh, um, and I mean. It, <laughs> I mean, it's not that obscure an idea. I mean, every every major religious tradition uh, has its mystical, uh, okay. its its mystical schools. Um, they tend to be more or less dominant in different parts of those traditions. Well, speaking of that, uh, I actually came across your name recently. Well, I was reading an essay on the perennial philosophy. You know, it's the 75th anniversary, I guess, of Huxley's book, The Perennial Philosophy. There was an, right. an essay in Aeon, A-E-O-N, uh, by a guy who had been a big fan of Huxley as a teenager, and it was kind of reflecting on the whole idea. The idea there, and it's not original to Huxley, but but what perennialism refers to is the idea that all the great spiritual traditions have some common core. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I honestly, I was scanning it. I don't remember exactly what was said about you, but are, do you consider yourself a perennialist? I don't like the name only because a lot of the people who used that name, uh, had very suspect politics. Hmm. I, a, what, what is, what is their, poli- what is the political uh, correlation? Uh, with- there just tended to be, uh, too, not, not in the case of Huxley, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about the, the term perennialism. There were simply people who, I mean, they were, they were sort of anti-democratic and they, they had, uh, they were, you know, the term is often used to people like Evola and others who have a fascist tendency. It's unfair, okay, to, to associate that term with that, but nonetheless, it's a term that comes with associations. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, yeah, I believe uh, God revealed himself to all peoples. I mean, I make no, I've never made a, I've never made a, a any secret of the fact, and and I, uh, the book, the experience of God, which, by the way, in which I'm unfair to an article of yours, by the way, at one point in the experience, Many, you're not the first. Well, well, which which article do you? Remember? It was one that was too Dawkins and too too Dawkinsian for me, it, and I and uh, it wasn't until I read more of your work that I realized this this wasn't all, all you were about, but this was years ago. So I think I was unfair to you. I think you are you are forgiven. You you will not suffer forever for that. Uh, it's good to know. Um, the uh, but um, uh, you know I uh, and I've been criticized for it, but uh, luckily I I'm not overly worried about it. Um, how about Prisca? Uh, theologia, you know, uh, that was the term that Ficino preferred so to Philosophia Perennis. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I and and uh, Asian. Uh, well, as I told you, I'm a scholar. I mean, I, I my degree is in religious studies, not in theology. Right. And a lot of my early study and a lot of my continued study is uh, in in South and East Asian religion and philosophy and, and language. Um, so I think I mentioned uh, in that all shall be saved that early on in life, uh, that how, how moved I was uh, by the, the figure of the Bodhisattva in the Mahayana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this image of one who 
has has achieved enlightenment and could you know neatly make his exit stage right from samsara in into nibbana but, and elects instead to work tirelessly for the liberation of all creatures all beings mm-hmm. um so that all will enter in before him i mean how how uh, i mean profoundly that moved me when i when i was uh, a boy and i still think it's a figure that christians should reflect on <laughs> you know what is that you know what claim is being made there about the nature of true compassion? Mm-hmm. Did, did you did your uh, attraction to some parts of Buddhism lead you to ever become a, a meditator or anything like that in the Buddhist tradition? That's a mala. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's not. You don't really have to. I mean, it's uh, the uh, Orthodox. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how to how to. I mean, not that not that most East Asians do actually meditate. It's just no, that the, I mean, the, in, in the Americanized fact, version of Buddhism emphasizes that in well, a way that uh, some of it does. If you've ever met yeah. members of Soka Gakkai, they're Nichiren and they actually discourage meditation. Hmm. So Buddhism is every bit as various as Christianity in this mm-hmm. regard. Uh, yeah, I find the the, the the meditative techniques tend to be the same in all the traditions, though. You know, Buddhism, Sufism, Hezeka, Christian hesychasm, you know, the same sort of um, quieting of the will and of the mind, uh, the attempt, you know, you move from the aesthetical to the illuminative to that experience, ideally of union, which I, I've never had, or of, of uh, enlightenment, if you prefer, uh, um, so I'm not even sure how you would say, you know, in the Buddhist sense. I mean, all all the meditative schools seem to to insist on the same on the same uh, sort of disciplines of the will and mind. Uh, if we're just talking about technique, yeah, I, I guess I did mean technique. I mean, I assume in, in Eastern Orthodox contemplative prayer, you're generally reciting something if only internally i mean not uh, like, there, yeah, yeah like the like the jesus prayer which functions right. like a mantra you know mm-hmm. like it's uh the, the constant repetition is supposed to become almost physiological to the point where the prayer prays itself in you mm-hmm. you're not even consciously exerting yourself to do so okay well, I think we've pretty much covered the waterfront here. I mean, we solved the mind-body problem, which is good. Uh, and, well, I've solved uh, it. Uh, you solved it. I'll, uh, uh, I'll release the findings later. Yeah, um, you promised a solution. The um, Is there anything else you want to say about the book or, or, or the idea of universal salvation? It's a very appealing idea. No, I mean, again... I just emphasize that the center of the book is a series, and we never got around to one of the, the principal issues in it is, well, there are a lot of principal issues we didn't touch on, like the possibility of analogical predication regarding God. But one is about the interpersonal uh, constitution of, of, uh, of well, mm. what personhood is, you know. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, that too is crucial to the discussion. Um but ultimately, uh, it is meant to be a single argument. So it it's kind of sort of starts, all these bits are meant to fit together so that each one creates a roadblock to a path of exit for those who don't want to follow the argument to the end. Now, I think I'm a fairly good <laughs> a dialectician. So, I mean, I think it's a successful argument, but whatever the case, 
whether it succeeds or not, the thing I do want to emphasize is the negative form of it. My claim is just very simply that either the story is coherent or it's not the whatever story Christians want to tell about God and any version that involves eternal perdition for a certain number of souls can only be maintained at the cost of equivocating on and and thereby essentially denying some other essential aspect or affirmation of Christian belief. And that most of us really know this. We just don't allow ourselves to know that we know it. Okay. And if you, if you do want to flesh out that you referred to the kind of the, the idea, um, what was it that personhood, it depends on interpersonal. But I mean, I mean, there the idea is that in God's conception, the, the ideal form for us to assume is in some sense one of kind of unity among ourselves, like all humans mm. add up to kind of a single person or something. Is that the idea? Well, I mean, that was definitely Gregory of Nyssa's view that, that, that uh, it's only the totality of humankind fully reconciled one to another and then with God that, that, that humanity according to the image of God actually comes into existence. Okay. But it's not just that. I mean, it's just a simple fact that, that um, who we are, what we are, is not, we're not isolated essences. I mean, we simply aren't. We're, not, we're finite beings. And so who we are is in large part constituted by the others that have shaped us, that have made us. Um, and what you're asked to contemplate uh, in the sort of traditional picture of hell is not only that that you could enter into uh, your final beatitude and still be the person you are in the absence of and indifferent to the suffering of not only those you've known, but all those who from afar you're related to by the absolutely indissoluble web of interrelations that, that, that constitutes all of humanity throughout time. Ultimately, you'll end up with a picture, the, the picture, and I, I can't repeat the whole argument here because I'm wearing down, but also just that you, you end up with Christians being asked to believe that the ultimate principle of heaven is exactly the same as the ultimate principle of hell which is every soul for itself it's a it's a bizarre okay. and un, un, and uh, uncomfortable picture yeah not a not a very flattering picture of us that we could be happy knowing yeah. that these people who took a wrong turn somewhere are going to suffer like forever uh and presumably God had a more flattering picture as part of the. Uh, the idea. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I understand that you know much of the religious language we use is nothing like is is nothing but the babble of babies trying to make sense of something they can't yet begin to comprehend. But I know this: I have to believe that God, that the you know God in the full proper sense, the uh, the you know the the infinite act of being who is the good the true the beautiful is actually morally superior to me <laughs> it's very yeah, humble yeah i, I should I, say I you're, you're not that. i mean I, i'm being pretty minimalist you, I'm, not, you, I'm, not, I'm not just saying it and I, you know i could be more minimalist and say he has to be morally superior to mm-hmm. donald trump or you know to hitler but i'm just saying that i uh, in general he has to be at least morally superior to somebody who you know mm-hmm. 
would forget his wife's birthday or something. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I think you have colleagues who would say that you're not always known for your humility and your, uh, and your arguments, but let, for the record, you, you do not think it, that you are superior to or even equal to God. No, I can honestly say that, that I do not, and I have never for a moment even suspected that I might be. So, Okay, you know. well, that's good. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time. The book is That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. You're, you're, you're known as a, in addition to being known as a, a fiery polemicist, and, and we do get some of that in this book, you're known as a very graceful writer and uh, as uh, a master of, uh, of many large bodies of, of knowledge, and, and it all comes through. So congratulations, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for talking to me, and thanks for holding, not holding it against me that I was mean to one of your articles. If I had to hold it against everyone who's been mean to me. Well, actually, by my standards, I wasn't mean at all. <laughs> no, but, but we know that that's, that's not setting the bar uh, uh, very high. Well, yeah. anyway, well, okay. uh, you, well, thanks a lot. Again, yeah, you okay, right. so you are you are forgiven. Salvation is yours. Uh, thanks a lot. <laughs>